Well, if you want to be happy, the first step is to buy a dog. And the second step is to buy a, another dog. Now, cat people, you know that's true. And because, you, you know, when you, when you want to sell people on your cat, you describe it as a dog, right? You know that's true. So you can buy a little happiness. I mean, you, you can buy a little happiness. But joy is different. Joy is a sense of well-being that is really outside of the circumstances, apart from circumstance. So, you can buy a little happiness, but joy must be received. From the Word of God, John chapter 2, aligning with joy through this story of the wedding of Cana. Jesus' first miracle. Hear God's word this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding. The third day. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? On the third day. Doesn't that sound familiar? Third day of Jesus' first week of his ministry. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, we remember this morning that when we aim at heaven, we get earth thrown in. And when we aim at earth, we get neither. So help us to aim at heaven this morning through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, we had a little game called What's He Looking At? Real creative name because all... All we did was, like, a few of us would conspire and just sort of, you know, maybe in an auditorium or at the, in the bleachers, we'd just look up at the same spot, right? And just, everybody just whispered, look at the spot, just hold it, right? So we'd all look, look at the same spot, and, pre- and then we'd watch, and it would be like, like the wave at a stadium.
They'd all, and then we'd stop looking, and then we'd look around, because then it, it caught on. We didn't have to look anymore, and then we'd have a good laugh. But, you know, that's a great picture of somebody with joy, who's full of joy. Because when they, when they look at some joyful person, they wonder, what is she looking at? What's he looking at? Joy is, you know, as, as Irenaeus said, um, the glory of God is someone who is fully alive. The glory of God is someone who is fully alive. That's a great description of joy. That's the description of the gift of the Spirit. And today's Pentecost, and we, we celebrate, we accent the, the pouring out, the gift of the Spirit, God's own Spirit, poured out over the church and into the believer that we may be joyful people, that, that in our walking around, people will wonder, what are they looking at? So let's look at what completes joy. What gives us more of it? What, what completes it? I'm going to make it really simple this morning. Joy is a gift that can only be received or given. That's the sermon in a sentence. Joy is a gift that can only be received or given. So we're going to break that down. A gift, received, or given. All right? So first, joy is, is a gift. So when you receive life as a gift, then what you're saying is, what you're, what you're living is a gift, and you know all gifts have a giver, right? So you're living life as a gift with a giver. You're living with a giver. You're making a connection between gift and giver. Now, this series is about course corrections. And I think one of the things that, that younger generations get frustrated with when they look at older generations is we either are focused on the giver, too much on the giver, without the gifts, or too much on the gifts without the giver. You say, well, gosh, you, you, God? Well, no, it's not that you, someone's focused too much on God. It's that, it's that they're disconnecting their life now from their life then. The gifts have a giver, and the giver has given gifts. And so when, when we live too much, you know, some, somebody said um, that uh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I just quoted C.S. Lewis that says, uh, you know, you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Those are two opposites, right? Which is true. Well, I think what Lewis is saying is you, you, you've got to have a connection between life now and life then and live that way. This is exactly what we see in this scene at Cana, this wedding. There's so much here. There's so many connections that Jesus is making. Between the bridegroom and him as ultimate bridegroom. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's so much here. The other day I was speaking with somebody who's outside our community and, and he said, you know, I love that new series, The Chosen. Have y'all, y'all seen the series The Chosen? I haven't seen any of it yet, but maybe a little clip here and there. I don't have anything wrong with The Chosen. I'm mean, Go watch The Chosen. That sounds like it's great. Um, I, I just don't know whether I should commend it to you, but I don't have any problem with what I've seen. But he said something that I think is a little bit amiss. He said, you know, it, it just, w- w- when I see it, you know, 
acted out in all its drama and fullness, uh, I realize, you know, all it is just reading it. So it really brings it to life. And I thought to myself, boy, I wish you could, I wish you could be with me. And I was studying John chapter 2. Because I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus not only turns water into wine, did you notice that the jars are purification jars? Did you notice that? I mean, each one of these jars is 20 to 30 gallons. It says it right there in the text. 20 to 30 gallons. It's about 150 bottles of wine. There's six of them, right? That's seven to 900 bottles of wine. Now, this is, a, this is a, a festival that usually would go on all seven, seven days, really, a whole week. And sometimes an entire town would come out. And so the bridegroom was responsible to feed these people. It was a time to, 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 to pull out all the stops. It was a time to celebrate. And, and you see, are you starting to make the connection? I mean, Jesus isn't just turning water into wine. He's doing it in such a way that ties all of the Old and New Testament together. Purification jars, this is where someone would come in, they'd take a ladle, and, and you'd put your hands out, and they'd pour the water over it so that, that you'd be ready to eat. It represents b- being washed clean. And, 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 of course, the wine throughout the Old Testament, wine does represent the Spirit of God. It re- represents blood. And Jesus makes this connection clear between his blood and the wine. And so here, and, and, and Jesus calls himself the bridegroom over and over again. Come to Unite God again, God the, the bridegroom, with his church, the bride. Ah, oh, the riches that are there. Somebody had to see these connections and then, and then dramatize them in film. It, it, it's dramatic on film because it's there in the text. And not only that, you see that Jesus is being asked to do something by his mother. It seems a little rude. It says, woman, right? My, my, uh, my brother and I used to do this little funny thing. We'd, we'd, we'd call my mom or my dad. My dad, parental unit number one, or my mom, parental unit number two. Because, you know, we'd, we'd kind of joke about the fact that teenagers uh, try to treat their parents like they're just sort of this generic authority figure. We'd, you know, so, so we'd make a joke out of it because it, it, essentially we're saying we're not doing that. We're, we're going to make a joke out of the idea that somehow, I think that's what's going on here because, because you can see what Mary does next is he just instructs the servants. She has every assurance that Jesus is going to do what she asked him to do. But what's he saying? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? His hour, his hour, the hour of judgment, the hour of his suffering. Jesus is a complicated person. He can at the one, in the same moment, be a little bit as a joke, but at the same time alluding to the fact that ultimately the gift that he's going to pour out in the church is not wine. celebrate. And yet, and yet, and yet, 
He turns water into wine. You know, there's a water just before this in the earlier chapter. John is baptizing Jesus. Jesus would ultimately turn water into blood to purify us. Not just for a feast, but for the ultimate feast. And here, yet, Jesus is saying, your life now matters. The celebration now matters. Your joy now matters. And he turns the water into wine. Not only just a little bit of wine, but bottles that everybody would be full. You know, there, there's a... Uh, I'm going to tie this to uh, the Ecclesiastes uh, book, that uh, part of which Tyler read. In chapter 8, it says... This is somebody who's just sort of playing devil's advocate, being Socratic about what's meaningful and what's joyful under the sun. And that's an idiom that just means if this is all there is to life, then what is it good? What is there good for us to do? Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? And Jesus is saying, he's neither saying just eat, drink, and be merry, but it, nor is he saying, just go into the lotus position and wait for the kingdom to come. He's putting together life under the sun, S-U-N, with life under the S-O-N, the sun, who would ultimately rejoin life now with life given for all time. You see, the gift has a giver, and when we live life as a gift, people wonder, what's she looking at? What's he looking at? The gift has a giver. Second, it can only be received. The gift, of, the gift of life, the gift of joy in life, someone fully awake and alive to life. pleasure out of life, but look at what your hands do. There's no room to be refilled again and again with the joy of your salvation. I'm going to read what, what Tyler read earlier. I'm going to read it as the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson translated in his, the message, his, his translation, the message. Listen to the way that he really, you know what I mean by Socratic, he's, he's tongue-in-cheek, you know, he's playing this role, he being the teacher, or Solomon, uh, he, is, he is testing what does life only under the sun have to offer us, and he ultimately concludes vanity, but listen to the way Eugene Peterson translates it, he says this, I'm going to pursue pleasure, I'm going to have more joy, now he's confused it, right, I'm going to have more joy than anyone has ever had. That's wrong. Watch this. He says, the first thing I'm going to do is organize the world around me to suit my taste. I'll make vineyards and gardens so what I want to look at and what I want to taste will be completely under my control. I will take absolute control of arranging everything exact, exactly the way I want it. The next thing I will do is turn everything into a commodity so that I can use it my own way. Each item will lose its individual quality and be under my control. 
I will multiply servants. So each loses identity and becomes a mere robot doing my will. I will multiply silver. So it's not just a means for exchanging goods in a in personal relation with others, but will put my power and importance on display. I will multiply concubines so each woman loses personality and becomes an object of my personal pleasure. Nothing has character in itself. It will be in complete control under me. Every pleasure and everything. Do you see the squeeze? Do you see how life loses its color and richness and fullness? Do you see someone losing his capacity for joy? Verse 10. Verse 10, it says this. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, it's a kind of a euphemistic way of saying, after people have kind of gotten a little bit numb from drinking too much wine... Then, they usually bring out the lesser quality wine, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus knows that we can't appreciate his good gifts, not fully. Jesus knows that, that, that the good gifts that, that we do receive, we often confuse to ultimate things. And yet, he's saying, the best is always yet to come. Somebody said, joy is the serious business of heaven. You see, joy comes bursting in. Not when we seek to control it or squeeze it or wring more pleasure out of life, but when we're going about the good that we have to get to do. Joy comes bursting in to the moments. You say, Tim, there's, I mean, I don't have as much as somebody else. Um, sometimes even what I have has been taken away. Right now, I'm, I'm dealing with a difficult situation. I don't know how I can be joyful. Are you saying that I'm supposed to walk around with a happy face because, uh, because I'm a Christian? And I'm just supposed to ignore all those things that are bothering me and all those challenges that I have and that person who's driving me crazy and the fact that none of my dreams have worked out yet. Am I just supposed to pretend all that away? Is that what you're saying? No. No. What I'm saying is that joy transcends when we receive it, when we're open to receive it. Now, I've been in many seasons of life where where the happiness has been drained from it and the color has been drained from life. Many different times. And in the midst of it, there's still a call, an upward call on Jesus Christ. There's still a quiet call that even in the depth of sorrow is the depth of meaning. That right there in the place where life is drained out or the well is is, is just simply dug and cored out is a greater capacity to experience a deeper joy. Not only that, look, things I understand. You're dealing, you're struggling with something right now, a diagnosis or a disappointment. I understand there are mysteries here. But you know there's another mystery. 
And that's the mystery, that we are made for joy. Let me, let me explain what I mean. We're always made to live in the position that the best is yet to come. No matter what's taken from you, everything eventually will be taken from you. Everything. But no matter what's taken from you, we are designed for joy. Made and why? I remember um, years ago, when the penny dropped on this, when I recognized, yes, that's exactly the point of sorrow, is to learn we're made for joy. The, the only place, you can, you can hold on to the justice and the bitterness, you can hold on to what you wanted or the unfairness or the sense that you want the accounts balanced, or you can open yourself up again. You can let that sorrow core you out to make greater capacity for joy. You see, I've been there and holding the hands. I've been there and seeing the loss. I've been there and listening to the lament. And I recognize by looking out and by looking in that until we're open again to the joy of our salvation, we will be without a home. We will be restless. We're made to live moment to moment with the idea and the promise and the hope and the assurance that the best is yet to come. And finally this. Life, joy is a gift that can only be received or given or given. How do you complete joy? Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, make my joy complete. What's he saying? He says, if you have any comfort from, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, make my joy complete by being what? By being like-minded and being one in spirit and purpose. What he's saying is, you will complete my joy by becoming people who give joy. My cup will be fill, filled by the way that you fill the cups of other people around you. I've been, I've been getting to know uh, a scholar, our author, Arthur Brooks. Have you heard of Arthur Brooks? He's at the Kennedy School, at Harvard Kennedy School of Business, and he's written a bunch of books. And uh, He's a Christian, and um, I, I say that with surprise, yes, I... Uh, given the, the, the location of his teaching and all. I mean, it, he's a Christian, and he, he uh, has written a, a new book on, on happiness. And he's talking about the first half and the second half of life. And he's talking about the fact that, that in the first half of life, your brain has the capacity of fluid intelligence. And that ends earlier than, I, earlier than I wanted to hear it ends. Okay, you, you've got the capacity to innovate. You've got the capacity to, to, uh, to take that, the raw knowledge that you have and work with it and do all kinds of amazing things with it. And then that comes to an end a lot sooner than I realized. Maybe that's the problem. I've been wondering, what, you know, what's going on here? But then he says, in the second half of life, your brain... is wired, integrating knowledge such that the best thing you can do, the, most, the, 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 the way that you function best in the second half of life is to take your integrated knowledge 
and help somebody else with it. To be the author of somebody else's success. To pour your cup out to somebody else. To, to engage with people outwardly. To be outward. To say, all of that I have accumulated, now I'm in the position to share. Not just to accumulate honors, not just to take the next hill, not just to, to ch- become a greater and greater champion, accumulating more and more and more. But unless you make this switch from fluid to what he calls crystallized knowledge, or what I call convergence, it's the idea that you, you've served a major role, you've had all these gifts, you've employed them a certain way, now you've got all this experience, and the confluence of all that is now positioned to go outward, to fill other people's cups. At the end of this passage, it says, this was the first of Jesus' many signs. Signs of what? What's the sign of? It's always a sign of a coming kingdom, a coming kingdom where people behave and act, where people engage and relate in generosity. They know how to relate to one another because they're about one another. Signs of the kingdom. You can see Jesus, he gives a little bit of this new wine to the master of ceremonies. There's somebody who's just sort of the, he's on the Lido deck with Julie. Some of you all know what I'm talking about here. The love boat, right? So he's in charge of all of the, the comings and goings. He's in charge of all of the festivities. And so he's on the Lido deck and he's got this and, and, he, he, and, and, and he's, he's tasting it because the servants have brought it to him. He doesn't know where it came from. So he assumes it's from the bridegroom, right? And Jesus is saying, look, I have given you these gifts. I'm not trying to take credit for it. I want you to share in the joy of your salvation. I want you to share in the joy of my creation because I'm in the business of recreating, and I want you. I'm going to give you a gratuitous gift so that you can do what with it? Hoard it? Build a platform for it? Or pour it out? And here, it's the master of ceremonies tasting this, this wine. And he's saying, wow, this bridegroom has saved the best for last. Jesus is sharing his generosity so that we may share generosity. And so the last point is simply this. The way that joy is completed is by multiplying it in the lives of other people. Helen Keller could not see. You know her story. She had to touch the lips and the face to be able to understand emotion, understand even ideas. She was brilliant, but she was locked in. I love this quotation. She says, there is joy in self-forgetfulness. Listen to this. There is joy in self-forgetfulness. So I tried to make the light in others' eyes my son. The music In others, ears, my symphony, the smile in others' lips, my happiness. Is that you? Does that describe your life? Are you making the light in others' eyes your son? The joy in others' ears your symphony? 
Are you about the kingdom business? Celebrating what you've been given into the lives of others. As Jonathan Edwards says this, this is the joy that we have to share. That our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this table set before us. And we pray that we would approach it with the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name.